This month on Security Management Highlights. DHS finally put this together, but they released it 14 months behind schedule. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates tells us more about a newly released cybersecurity strategy for the U.S. government. 5% of worldwide business revenue is lost to fraud. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo explains why occupational fraud is costing companies billions. Plus, Nicholas D'Agostino, PSP, PMP, with Augustino & Associates, shares project management best practices for security professionals. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. Between 2006 and 2015, the U.S. government experienced a tenfold increase in cyber incidents. As an effort to stem these vulnerabilities and threats, the Department of Homeland Security released new cyber guidance. But critics say it does not go far enough. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates is here with more. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Bring us up to speed on this issue. Why has DHS released this cybersecurity strategy now? In 2017, the National Defense Authorization Act was passed, and it required DHS to release a cybersecurity strategy to guide its efforts over a five-year period and to really look at cybersecurity as a comprehensive topic from the federal government's point of view. And so DHS finally put this together, but they released it 14 months behind schedule, and they got a lot of criticism for, for missing that deadline, you know, being like, we were behind already, and now we are even further behind. There is a lot of information here. How did DHS break it all down and present it? So basically, the strategy is a big mission statement on how DHS views cyber risks to the federal government in the United States. So the strategy lays out a five-part approach to manage national cyber risk, identifying risk, reducing vulnerability, reducing threat, mitigating consequences, and enabling cybersecurity outcomes. And so under each of those pillars, there are different goals that DHS has identified in the strategy. I mean, some are more comprehensive than others. But basically what DHS said is that all of these will ensure the availability of critical national functions to foster efficiency, innovation, trustworthy communication, and economic prosperity in ways consistent with our national values and that protect privacy and civil liberties. And you write that there are some critics within Congress who have been pretty vocal about their concerns with the strategy. Who are those people and what did they say? And also you are going to tell us a little bit more about some recent response from the Government Accountability Office. Yeah, so obviously some of the most vocal critics of this cybersecurity strategy have been within Congress itself. U.S. Representative Benny G. Thompson, he's the ranking member of the House Homeland Security Committee, and Cedric Richmond, he's the ranking member of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Protection Subcommittee, and also he wrote the legislation that required the strategy. Um, both of them said that they were disappointed that the strategy was released late and that it did not discuss election security at all, which, you know, as we've been discussing it and getting closer to the midterms is a big major cybersecurity concern for the United States. And they also stressed that they were disappointed that DHS has not released an implementation plan about how they're actually going to implement this strategy now that they have it. Um, that is due to Congress on August 15th of 2018. So they could still meet the deadline. We're just waiting to see. As you mentioned, Holly, a new report just came out from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, and it identified four major cybersecurity challenges for the U.S. federal government, sort of in line with this strategy. 
One of those was establishing a comprehensive cybersecurity strategy and performing effective oversight of that strategy. It also highlighted as the other challenges, you know, securing federal systems and information, protecting cyber critical infrastructure, and protecting privacy and sensitive data. I'm curious to see if they'll change their mind, if there'll be an update to the report once DHS has released an implementation plan. Be sure to keep us posted on that. Thank you so much, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. Stealing post-it notes and office supplies is just a drop in the bucket when it comes to the losses companies suffer each year from occupational fraud. New reports show that the problem is on the rise. Here to talk more about those studies and what managers can do to spot red flags from employees is News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Mark, you based your article on findings in two reports about occupational fraud. Tell us a little bit more about those reports and who issued them. So the first report was issued by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, ASFE, Report to the Nations, and they actually do this report every two years. This was the 10th edition. It's very extensive. It looks at 2,690 cases of fraud that span 23 industries in 125 countries in the time frame of January 2016 to October 2017. All those cases of fraud resulted in losses that exceeded $7.1 billion in U.S. dollars. But the report also found that the true global cost of fraud is likely magnitudes higher. ACFE estimates that 5% of worldwide business revenue is lost to fraud. That would roughly come out to $4 trillion annually lost to fraud on a global basis. The second report, it's called the UK Business Payments Barometer 2017, done by a group called Bottom Line Technologies. Of the study respondents who were asked, are you concerned about internal fraud? That percent jumped from 13% in 2016 to 31% in 2017, what the report calls a staggering 138% year-on-year increase. Now, you spoke with John Warren, who's vice president and general counsel of ACFE. What was his take on the type of employee-turned-fraudster who carries out this sort of theft? What are some red flags or behavioral signs that managers and other workers could be on the lookout for? Yeah, as John Warren said pretty strikingly, A fraudster doesn't look like a fraudster. They look like everybody else. It legitimately could be anyone. He said, these are all direct quotes, it's not the person who looks sketchy. It could be the person who comes over to your house for dinner on the weekend. And so often what happens is when a fraudster is caught, there's a very common reaction of just shock where coworkers go, wow, that's the last person I would have suspected. And it's also a very egalitarian problem. It can be a CEO or a C-suite executive, and it can be a low-level line employee. Either one could possibly be a fraudster. As John Warren said, their message is fraud's not an accounting problem, it's a behavior problem. And what happens is they look at all these potential red flags of behavior, and every time they do the study, they do the study every two years, the same six rank the highest. Living beyond one's means, 
two, financial difficulties, three, unusually close association with a customer, four, control issues or an unwillingness to share duties, five, divorce or other family problems, and six, a wheeler-dealer attitude or cultivated self-image. They found that in 85% of the fraud cases examined in the report, the fraudster displayed at least one of these red flags. And in 50% of the cases, he or she displayed multiple red flags. So they're really common in cases of fraud. What are some ways, if any, that managers can counter these fraudulent behaviors or stop a fraudster in his or her tracks? A lot of the experts focused on two areas. They are internal controls and cultural excellence. Some expert recommendations for internal controls are consistent employee background checks before hiring, ensuring that sensitive duties are entrusted to more than one employee, implementing spot audit programs and conducting random audits in particularly vulnerable areas, and training employees about fraud prevention and red flags they should be aware of. The other key is what some call cultural excellence. Here, the mantra is the tone is set at the top. If employees see that this is a squeaky clean organization, managers often talk about business ethics and they lead by example. They're very respectful to people and also openly supporting a company code or an organization code of conduct and ethics. Those type of organizations are less likely to be preyed upon. It's pretty much employees take their cues from the top. And if it's solid at the top, it's more likely to be solid all over. Thank you so much for stopping by and explaining all this, Mark. Thanks, Holly. Finally, more and more organizations are hiring project managers and consultants. But as this month's cover story explains, the project management process is accessible to the security practitioner and can be broken down into five stages. Nicholas Diagostino, PSP, PMP, is a senior manager of system design for Diagostino and Associates. He stops by to discuss the systematic stages of project management and how it can be harnessed to create alignment. Hello, Nick. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You write that when initiating a project, it should be clearly defined not only by the project owners, but all stakeholders involved. Can you explain these and other steps that come with the initiating process? As I say in the article, the initiating process is really the act of discovery of a project. The owner is typically coming to the consultant and the designer with sometimes a fuzzy idea of the work or the systems that they want to be installed and implemented within their facilities. And it's really up to the project manager at that point to get everybody in the room and really flesh out the scope of the project. And once they know what the scope will entail, really picking apart each piece and saying, well, if we're dealing with video surveillance, who will that affect in the facility? Who do we need on board? Who do we need in the stakeholders' room to make the decisions that will really drive the direction of the design? And once all that information is taken care of, the project manager at that point, particularly if they're in charge of the design as well, needs to go back to their corner and say, well, who do I need on my team 
to ensure that this project will be completed in a efficient manner while giving the best product to the owner at the end of the day. So it's really the time to ask a lot of questions, make sure you're clear on scope, clear on what you own, and make sure really all the people that need to be included have a say and know that they are being included. According to your article, the greatest indicator of a well-executed project is a well-executed design process. So what do you mean by that? Design is the time when the designer, the project manager, and the owner, and the end users get together. They figure out what is needed for each project and really hash out any issues that may come up with the configuration between different systems, installation issues, and the field. And the reason all that's done in design is because if it was left to be figured out in the field during the installation process, it would cost much more money than during the design process, and it would slow down the installation, sometimes to a halt. So during the design process, it's the designer and the project manager's responsibility to really uncover every stone and make sure every detail is included. And once all that is taken care of, and once you have a complete design package, it really makes the job so much easier for the installer, the integrator, to come in and have a complete package that they could price and then go in and install and not really have to worry or ask a ton of questions out in the field, which just slows everything down. And given, Nick, that the project management process has closely followed these last two steps, you write the execution process should go smoothly. What are those important considerations to pay attention to during this phase? So the first thing to remember during the execution process is to make sure all the lines of communication are kept open. This is the time when the owner is going to want to have frequent updates. How's the project doing? Where are we? Are we meeting our goals? Are we meeting our milestone targets? And the project manager really needs to keep the line of communication open with the contractor saying, what can I give you to make sure that you're ready to move to the next facility? What do you need from the owner to ensure that the configuration is going well? So this is the time when the project manager is juggling the most balls, but it's also the time where the project really starts to come to fruition and we can really start to see an end product start to develop. One of the things to really remember is to keep the lines of communication open, keep asking questions, and really try to foresee any issues out in the field before they come to pass. The sooner that you could fix a problem, the easier it will be to move on past that problem and stay on schedule. Finally, tell us more about the last three stages, monitoring and controlling, and also the final stage, which is closing. Monitoring and controlling goes hand-in-hand with the execution process. It's another role the project manager has to have, and they can blur at times, but it's really making sure that the projects on track, not just putting out fires, but making sure we're moving ahead, meeting our deadlines, meeting our milestones. And as the project starts to wrap up, we slowly move into closing. The closing process, the tasks that need to be completed aren't necessarily difficult tasks. So although they're not difficult tasks, getting everybody on board and making sure we're meeting the uh, milestones for these tasks. Thanks so much for being here today, Nick. Thank you. That does it for this month's podcast. For an extended version of my conversation with Nicholas D'Agostino, be on the lookout for a bonus podcast later this month. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye-bye.